And if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Isaiah chapter 17. <laughs> and uh, talk about a few things. Uh, last week we talked about the first kind of half of uh, chapter 17, which was um, a woe or an oracle against Damascus, which quickly became an oracle against Israel as well. And we talked about how Israel and Damascus slash Syria were joined together um, in their alliance, and because of that, what happened to one was going to affect the other. Um, and that's exactly what did happen. And we'll bring up our maps just to discuss, oh yeah, by the way, we have a new thing going on because it's, it's fall. Um, and again, just so everyone's aware, again, Assyria is the main power at the time, and they're conquering pretty much everything. And then the next map kind of shows the different ways in which they did that. Um, going down, and then you can see why Egypt eventually is going to come into the picture, because uh, uh, Assyria wanted to conquer everything, <laughs> including Egypt. So eventually that becomes part of a, the whole issue that we see. Um, and then finally we have um, the last one, which kind of shows again why we were talking about Syria up here with Damascus all the way at the top, um, and Israel together because of their alliance against uh, Assyria. So we have these different nations going on and we've had all these different oracles against them and it's, it's, we're seeing why these oracles come about and why God's judgment is coming upon the people. Um, but now we're going to come and, and it's really interesting the way that Isaiah does this because Israel and Damascus were combined and now Israel does something thematically or Isaiah does something thematically where it, it becomes now against all the peoples of the nations and we're going to see how that happens in these verses. So um, starting with verse 12, uh, we read, Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. But he will rebuke them. They will flee far away. Chase like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold, terror before morning, they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. So again, there's a thematic shift in verse 12 that lasts to the end of uh, chapter 18. Previously, as we saw, the focus was on Damascus, Syria, and Israel. Now the focus will shift again to all the nations of the world. Thus we find the nations coming against God's people. When the people of God witness the nations, it is described as the sea, um, the waves, they crash over and over and over, loud and boisterous, and they're not able to be controlled. The nations are perceived in this way. They're great and mighty. Indeed, while it is the case that the nations appear this way, when compared to God, they're not so strong. God rebukes the nations, which causes them to flee. Some scholars note that the rebuke aspect may be reminiscent of ancient pagan understandings of the high god's victory over the chaos monster in the form of the sea or the ocean. And one commentator notes, though, that not that Isaiah was adopting that theology, he was simply taking over that um, what would be a powerful and emotive imagery to convey the distantly biblical theology. But if they are not like the sea, which is chaotic and strong, then what are the nations like? The answer, the biblical answer, is that they are like chaff or whirling dust. They are inconsequential compared to the living God, easily blown away. 
We notice how else the prophet declares this. Describing them as the evening a terror, a terror, but by morning no more. They have no lasting power in and of themselves. They seem so incredibly strong, able to persevere and to destroy. But in the end, they are weak, unable to last. Thus, though God's people experience the struggle against them, against the nations, and though they experience even loss to the nations, in the end, God is still sovereign over them all. And it's with this we come into chapter 18. Ah, the land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea in vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a mighty nation and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look, when a trumpet is blown, hear. So chapter 18, it continues the theme of judgment against the nations. It begins by focusing on the land beyond the rivers of Cush. In the ancient world, this is actually Ethiopia, which is often considered to be the ends of the known world at the time. From this perspective, we see how in verse 2, they are to send ambassadors to the nation. And this makes sense then, in that if the messengers are being sent to all the earth, the starting place is the end of the earth, so that way they can go all through the earth. Along with this, Um, ends of the earth motif is the fact that in 715 AD or BC, a new dynasty began in Egypt, which was Cushite. As such, there is a thought that the Egyptians were sending envoys to start a coalition against Assyria, something which we saw Philistia do as well. In this case, Isaiah may know of the envoys and then uses them as an analogy for a greater message. Vessels of papyrus is interesting. Papyrus in the ancient world was used for paper. As such, it isn't necessary to believe that the vessels were literally made out of papyrus, but instead shows the swiftness of the messengers themselves. They go on the waters to swiftly carry their messages. We notice how they are told to go to a nation tall and smooth, a people feared, a mighty and conquering nation. Now this could be taken literally or figuratively. If it is literal, it may refer to either the Assyrians or the Medes. The Assyrians were, again at the time, the great enemy, so to speak. But one would expect them to be named if it was specific for them. Likewise, the Medes make sense since they were known for their brutality and known for their conquering ways. And we see this later on how the Persian and the Mede Empire, they combine to attack uh, Syria and then gain the upper hand. Now, the alternative perspective, however, is that this is all figurative, um, not necessarily meaning any nation in particular. Indeed, this focus is seen in verse 3 where the whole inhabitants of the world are seen to be hearers of the message. But that leaves the question, what is the message that they are to receive? And that's what we find, starting with verse 4. For thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks and The spreading branches he lops off and clears away. They shall all of them be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will summer on them and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, 
whose land the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. So we can consider the text at this point. We are all awaiting this great message which is to come. And we can imagine the great judgment which God will proclaim. Yet what do we find right at the beginning? We find God sitting quietly. But it isn't as though he does nothing. The sun comes up in the morning and the heat builds naturally from it. Likewise, the morning mist comes in its due course. For God to watch the situation is like this. He is patient in his ways. Verse 5 shows us that not only is God patient, but he is also calculating. Like a farmer who knows exactly when to prune for the betterment of his crops, so too God knows when to act. He doesn't act without wisdom, but instead acts at the right moment. This leads to verse 6, which describes the tendrils, that is the cut off pieces. They are strewn on the ground. But the prophet declares them to be not branches of a tree, but instead are the corpses of the enemy. There will be so so much corpse left that the birds of prey and the beasts of the earth will have more than enough to fill to last the year. Thus we find God is not only patient, not only calculating, not only wise, but he is incredibly strong. If indeed there was a literal envoy from Egypt seeking to form a coalition against Assyria, then the final verse responds to such a coalition. The figurative power previously mentioned is brought low. Though they be powerful, in the end, they are the ones who will be bringing tribute to God. Indeed, it is to Mount Zion that they come. It is God's holy place among the nations, where the nations themselves will come with tribute. But it isn't just the place which is the focus, but the person who owns the place. The name of the Lord This concept, scholars note, show the whole of God as deity. It isn't just one characteristic which is in view, but all of who God is. His patience, his wisdom, his power, his love and kindness. All of these things are the reason why they come. Because God is truly God. He is worthy of all worship from all the nations. So the main point of these verses... There are to reflect upon the nations. Though the nations be powerful. And though they stand against God's people. In the end they are nothing. In comparison with God himself. Indeed God is patient. But also wise. Calculating and powerful. Though it appears as though he is not involved. The truth is. He is always sovereign. And eventually the nations will come to accept. That he is the true God of all. Not them. That is, they are not the true God of all. All right. So in today's text, we continue to see the dichotomy placed before us. The nations on one hand and God on the other. We can almost see how Isaiah's previous experience with God has caused this dichotomy to be always at the forefront of his mind. As the people of God live in a world with many different nations and many different powers, what will they cling to? When it matters the most. Thus Isaiah is dealing with something we all deal with. Where will we place our trust and our assurance? In today's text. Isaiah gives us ample reason why we should not put our trust and assurance in the nations of the world. But instead in God himself. 
Isaiah continues to show us the reason why God is far superior uh, to any of the nations which have existed in the time of Isaiah or since. Because as it is, while the nations are powerful, they're not sovereign over all. There is only one who is completely sovereign. Only one who is king. Only one who is Lord. In the context of the text, that person is God Almighty. The covenantal Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the one whom the nations ought to seek obedience to. And he is the one we are to seek with our lives. This alone would be enough for us to accept. But we need to consider too the reason why we should acknowledge God for who he is. And that is concerning his holy character. Isaiah in particular emphasizes three attributes of God which further our understanding of who God is and why he is worthy of obedience. The first one dealt with his patience. Our God is patient. He is not like us. We often make judgments which are far too hasty. In today's world, this is even more realized than in the past. How easy is it for us to read something online and quickly come to a conclusion based upon what we see? I can think of one instance in particular. Um, Some may know or not know about Juicy Smollett. But he is an actor who late at night claimed that he was attacked by a bunch of racists. And I believe it was in Chicago. As soon as the news broke, everyone was in an uproar. The news, social media, whoever it was heard the news that he had been attacked and the immediate response was one of anger over the situation. But should that have been the response? Because the answer turns out to be no. Because as time went on, we've learned that the whole story was fabricated. Through impatience, many were fooled into making a fast judgment about an event which turned out to not even be true. Now God, he is not that way. We learn how God is patient with humanity. We consider how humanity is not simply cast into death because of sin, but God has dealt patiently with our sinfulness. And his patience has led many to salvation. Yet, this does not mean all enter into his salvation. For we know of the Canaanites, whom God was patient with in regards to judgment. We consider both of these things as we read in Genesis, which says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to sleep with your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." Here we find he was patient so that their sins were full before casting his judgment against the Amorites, the Canaanites. He was patient waiting hundreds of years before allowing it to come against them. The same is true with his own people, the Israelites, who were judged for their faithlessness. God, however, was ever patient with them, willing to forbear much sin before allowing judgment to come. Thus we find this reality, whether in salvation, allowing his people to be enslaved for hundreds of years before bringing them out of salvation, or in judgment, God is patient in his ways.
Now this leads us to the second attribute, and that is the wisdom of God. Isaiah describes God's wisdom. He knows when to prune and when to not prune. He is the one who has brought about all that we see, all that we experience for his glory. Indeed, it requires wisdom, discernment, to bring about all things. And that would make sense. And we even find it in the scriptures. Consider what Jeremiah says. It is he who has made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens. And he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. And he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. God's wisdom directs the course of this world. He leads the whole course of history. Knowing the path of all things that must be taken. Not only has he created the whole universe with purpose, with design and wisdom. But he even bestows wisdom to us. We consider what is said in Deuteronomy. See I have taught you statutes and rules. As the Lord my God commanded me. That you should do them in the land. That you were entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom. And your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who when they hear all these statutes will say. Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all the law that I set before you today? God has given us wisdom in his law. He has created us with our own wills and the ability to follow after him in his ways. Like the law says, if we would follow after him, And his ways, we would be a people unlike any other. For his ways are wise and filled with understanding. Thus to follow after would mean that we would gain wisdom and understanding which comes from him. Thus God allows us to be partakers of his purposes. But he also brings about his purposes in his own ways and his own designs. Indeed, in his own wisdom. In knowing God, we recognize that the events which unfold are leading us somewhere. And if human freedom be involved, then we know that God is still in control even with human freedom. We have seen this in Genesis when we read Joseph saying, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. We also read in the New Testament with perhaps the greatest statement of this ever, which comes from Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to a the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. From all this, we understand and know that God is good. And in knowing his goodness, it allows us to see he is leading us to the best possible outcome, despite the many threads that pull us along. Yet he is the one who gives the purpose and he is the one who provides the salvation and the judgment and it is all given through this wisdom that he possesses. Finally, we see how God is powerful. When he decides to act, 
whether it be against a tree or a nation, then we can be sure that his ultimate goal will come to completion. There is no greater evidence of this to be found than in the person of Jesus Christ. Through the coming of Jesus, we find God's power on full display. For the greatest enemy of all humanity, of all things, is death. And in the person of Jesus, death is conquered. If all humanity has a foe, it would be death. For death comes to all humans because of their sins. If God, however, defeats death, then the greatest enemy is defeated. In Christ, we find such a defeat. As the scriptures say, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that he will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And also found, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been made manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I have, for at which I was appointed a preacher and apostle teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day that was entrusted to me. If it is true then that God is powerful enough to put death to death, then what is there to worry about in regards to the nations? For the nations are powerful, true. But can any of them end death itself? No. Instead, we have found repeatedly that while the nations can be great, they can also fall. While they can have some earthen power, in the grand scheme of things, they too will fall to dust. Thus, when we consider the power of God in comparison with the nations of men, we find God is to be superior and greater than they. For nations rise and fall, but God is forever. He is enthroned forever. He is the king forever, and there will, can be none which overwhelm or overtake him. His greatness has no equal. He is holy. He is righteous, just, loving, and filled with justice. Isaiah has given us plenty of reasons to turn toward God. He has shown us a God who is high and lifted up, and today he has shown us a God who is patient, wise, and powerful. The question we must ask is, will we seek to follow this God or will we follow something else? Know the ramifications of the choice. If you choose to allow something other than God to reign supreme in your life, then you will fall into impatience, foolishness, and powerlessness. In God, however, we find patience, wisdom, and power not coming from us, but coming from God. Do not delay then in honoring this God with your life. Start today, and then every day hereafter to follow the supreme Lord of all. He is our God. He is great, and he is mighty. He overwhelms evil as a flood, and is gentle with those whom he is well pleased. He offers grace, mercy, and love, but he will not be mocked by any person or nation.
The nations will perish in time. Stand then, not on nations, but on the rock of all things, that is God, knowing that through him we shall overcome, for he is patient, wise, and powerful. This is the hope we find in him, and it encourages us to join even now with those who will soon say, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces among the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Naturally, I believe that this leads us to the gospel. Because it's in the gospel that we find the power of God made most manifest as well as the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God. And it all starts with our origins that all humanity is created in the image of God. And we rejoice in this because that means that every human person, whether male or female, and no matter what one's race is, no matter what, you are made in the image of God. Consider how great of a blessing this is. That each one of us is able to reason, to love, To know and be known. There's so much here. Right at the beginning. And that's what causes the fall to be so devastating. And that's what we see with the nations as they're being judged by God. Because sin encourages us to say no to God. Sin says we can do it on our own. The nations believe that they are more powerful than God himself. And nations, they're comprised of people, humanity, people like us who believe that we are stronger than God. We are greater than God. And we can do whatever we want. And it's remindful of what we talked about with the children, with judges. They all did what was right in their own eyes as though they were wiser than God. And it makes us sorrowful because we see a world where we continue to see this plague. And the plague isn't COVID. The plague isn't some other physical ailment. The plague is sin. And it infects everything. Absolutely everything. And so the nations of old, they were judged. Nations today are judged. So the question is, what can be done? What can be done to save us from sin and darkness and judgment? In the end, we find a little bit of this today in the text. They all go to where? Jerusalem. They all give tribute to the name of the Lord. It's going to be from God that redemption comes. He is the bringer of salvation. And he has given salvation through the person of Jesus Christ who came in time, space, history, and flesh. And through his life, death, and resurrection we find God's grace, love, justice. We find his patience immeasurable. We find his wisdom in the teachings of Christ. 
And we find his power through Christ. And so we rejoice in the person of Jesus Christ because it's through him that judgment is abated, cast away. It's through him that salvation truly comes. But there's a warning there. Because if we should spurn God, judgment for all eternity. We have been given a choice. Death or life. And as we read from Hebrews with the children. (laughs) Think about that for a second. Faith. Faith led to so many accomplishments. It wasn't the power of the people. It was their faith that led to so many accomplishments. Faith in God that allowed conquerors to be conquered. Which allowed healing to come. Which allowed nations to fall on their knees. Faith. And that's what redemption is about. Faith in Christ. And this faith, it's leading us to glory. It's leading us to that time in Revelation when we were all worship the Lamb of God because he is worthy of worship. And we know it now. And we're going to experience him in full and we're going to fall on our knees in glory knowing that this God is truly the God of all. And all the doubts and all the sins are really gone. We can all look forward to that and hope. So be encouraged then by the gospel. Because it's in the gospel that we find all the elements of this passage even. Judgment, salvation, patience, wisdom, power. It's all found in the person of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the prophets of old. We thank you so much that you are a God who has communicated to us wisdom. And that you have communicated to us who you are. So that way we could know you. And as your son comes to find us and to give us salvation, Lord. We rejoice over what he has accomplished and we rejoice in knowing that we know you. That you are not foreign to us. But that we can experience you here and now. And Lord, we quake and we fear at judgment. But we also fall joyously into your loving arms of salvation. And so Lord, we ask that if we should still be in judgment that we would quake still. We also ask, Lord, that if we should have been found in salvation, that we would know the grace, mercy, and love of you, and we would rejoice. In all things, Lord, let us rejoice, because you are worthy of all. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.